0: A few weeks ago, Pastor Bond asked me if I wouldn't mind preaching or if I'd like to preach on the 21st. And I was, um, I was looking at the calendar and I'm like, boy, that's Father's Day. I'm like, you sure you want me to preach on Father's Day? And um, I said, well, should I do a sermon that has something to do with Father's Day? And um, he um, said, well, um, you should acknowledge them. So, Happy Father's Day. It's, it's a little bit uh, different. He told me it's a little bit different than Mother's Day. So, um, I'm just supposed to acknowledge you guys out there. Happy Father's Day to you all. Um... And uh, I'm a little intimidated also, so it's going to take a while to knock off some rust. It's been a while since I've been up here behind this uh, pulpit. Um, And there's a video camera on me, too, so hello to all those uh, social media folks that are watching me today. Um, I've been told that I have a face for radio, so that's why that intimidates me, um, is that they're actually filming me. All right, well, let's get into it. And um, I need you to turn to Ephesians 6. And there we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we come to you for the proclamation of the Word we ask you to i ask you to get me out of the way i don't say words right all the all the time i i stumble on my words and and lord i i, I pray that uh, your words can come through me even though i do those things and lord um i am not a father up here that should be giving this message i've got Things that I know when preparing this sermon, Lord, that um, you are working within me. And I pray that I will yield those things to you, and that your word will be as clear to me as it is to everyone that hears it. I pray these things in your Son's matchless name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In a book called Lectures on Revival by William Spray, He he details four areas in which he believes God uses to ignite the fires of reformation and revival within his people. The four points, uh, I'll start with point number one. A return to the faithful preaching of the Word of God. Within the evangelical church today, especially in America, this is not the case in a lot of places Emphasis is on everything but preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you might have known him. He's passed away now. But he says this, Historically speaking, a return to the preaching of the Word of God has always occupied a central place in the work of revival. Point number two from William Spray. There is a recommitment to private and corporate prayer. Not only do people get serious about praying in their closets, but they begin to meet together as a body to repent and seek the face of God. Point number three. A renewed dedication to regular instruction of the Scriptures. By this we mean small small group Bible studies, personal Bible reading, catechizing, Scripture memorization, the study of doctrine, the study of theology, which in our day has been set aside as divisive and impractical. But that becomes important again during these times of revival. This is an indication that God is at work. God is jealous For His truth, this would be an indication that He is beginning to awaken His people. Church, the opposite's true also. When when God's people set aside doctrinal distinctives and clarity for the sake of external unity, there is no revival, and the church falls into long periods of silence. They hear silence from God. Of course we don't have time today to get into those doctrinal distinctives that are important but know this it's a single it's a signal of the downturn in the church when we have that time where we do not care about doctrine so fourth the first fourth point here this might be the most surprising of all the points It is a renewed commitment to the faithful fulfilling of parental responsibility. There's no promise if we follow these four steps that we'll see a revival within the global church. Revival and reformation is a sovereign act of God. As much as we would like to conjure up the necessary means for revival, we have to remember God is sovereign. And in great part, if we've learned anything from the past, that a thorough return to our parental duties, and especially the duties of fathers, fathers taking up their God-given responsibilities as prophet, priest, and king in the home, it's imperative. It's imperative for our renewed commitment to the faithful fulfilling of our parental responsibilities. I know there's some of you here that are very much committed to every one of these points that I've, I've listed from William Spray. But church, as I look at the requirements of me as a father, just when I think I got it, I'm humbled. I'm inept. I'm incompetent. I have so much to learn from God on this subject of fatherhood. Even in preparation for this sermon, I was highly convicted in areas of my clumsy... Lumbering, passive fathering. So I'm praying for you, church, in particular, you fathers, that we all have a renewed commitment to this last point of revival and reformation, of a faithful filling of a parental responsibility, particularly as fathers. So, this day, church, Will we, as fathers, take up our holy responsibilities as Christian fathers to our children on behalf of Christ and in his name for his glory? So what are the responsibilities that I ask you to commit to today? The holy responsibility of a Christian father begins with a clear recognition of his God-ordained role. So let's go back to Ephesians. We started there. Verse 4 in particular. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's the subject in this verse? Fathers. It's not my purpose to diminish the responsibility of Christian mothers, but that's a whole other sermon. Probably for Mother's Day. Paul here is not re, also not writing here to any old father. He's writing to a very specific kind of father, an Ephesians father. With all that means, from this wonderful letter in particular, Paul is writing to an Ephesians Christian father. The world will bring into our minds all distortions of what we are to be as father. Here in this verse, Paul is driving firmly a stake in the ground. By the grace of God, I will cease to be passive. By the grace of God, I will cease to pass on this parental responsibility to my wife, to the church, to the daycare center, or to the school. This work begins with a clear recognition of my God-ordained role as father, prophet, priest, and king in my home. Uh, Hopefully you guys are saying, boy, this is really good. (laughs) But but what's the next step? Where do we go from here, right? And that's a good question. I would guess most of us as fathers have a heart for this task, but we, we lack the understanding of what we need to do. There are some things we need to do as fathers, but my purpose here today is not to talk about what we need to do, but to clear up our understanding of how we are to think about this. What we are to do as fathers is is predicated on certain theological truths about the nature of our children. Until we understand these truths at a foundational level, we will never really truly understand what we are to do as fathers, and we won't be motivated to actually do them. So, my theme this morning is, the holy responsibility of a Christian father must be determined by a biblical understanding of who our children are. Again, Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So the subject again is fathers, right? The object of this task. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. I realize at this point you might be thinking, this is simple. (laughs) Let's just not provoke our children to anger, right? But if we fail to, we can't fail to ignore something that we could take for granted with this verse. The, The who is the them here, the ones we are to bring up, who are these children? If we're to bring them up, who are they? We need to know who the object is. This means we need to know what they are like. Once we understand what they're like, it will have the greatest influence on how we bring them up. Where do we get this information? Where do we get the straight scoop on children? Who are they? What they're like? Their nature? Their makeup? Do we get it from an expert in child psychology? Do we learn of them in a sociology class? From a well-meaning but secular-informed pediatrician? You might smirk as I bring some of these up, but these are the sources that have become the greatest influence on how the world thinks about our children. And church, we're not exempt from this. The vast majority of popular Christian literature on the shelves today, written by names that most of you would all recognize, the great majority of it has been saturated in humanism and psychology. So where do we find out what children are like? I'll tell you, there's a source that is reliable and has never missed the mark. Fathers, you find out what children are like by becoming a theologian. By discovering what God says about the nature of your children, by going to the scriptures and from them grasping a biblical theology about the nature of children. It's here we must take our thinking about children and adjust it. It's our theology that determines our practice. Don't get me wrong. Please do not take me as absolutes. Somebody will run to Pastor Bond and say something was wrong here. Don't get me wrong. You can have outside sources. There are good outside sources. But we should never take those outside sources and tweak what the Bible says about children. The Bible is our authority. Everything else, including psychology, bows its knee into subjection to the Word of God. So what does the Bible say about our children? This morning I'm going to give you four principles about what I believe the Bible teaches about our children. Principle number one. We need to recognize our children, our image bearer of the Most High God. Because we share some biological similarities, the secular scientists will tell us that humanity is the most sophisticated, highest form of animal. They would call us the apex of the evolutionary process. What does God say about this? Turn to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, we're going to read verse 26 and verse 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is a packed couple of verses. But two very obvious truths should rush forward to us on our first point, that we need to recognize our children are image bearers of the Most High God. God made man, and he made man in his own image. You have to understand as fathers that your child is altogether different than any animal. That your child possesses worth that far exceeds any created thing that God has ever designed. The universe wasn't created in the image of God. In its beauty, in its majesty, in its largeness. We can't even measure it. It's not said to be created in the image of God. Nothing in the animal kingdom is created in the image of God. Think about the holy angels, the seraphim, those glorious angels. They serve at the very throne of God. They're not created in the image of God. God created the human race to be set apart from every other created thing. We were created to radiate and reflect the very glory of God. But you know the story, right? God put Adam in the garden. Adam failed the test and thus plunged the entire human race into ruin, severely disfiguring the image of God that man was intended to reflect. However, though that image was marred, it's not lost altogether the fall did not destroy the essential identity as man as an image bearer and you say how can we know that well if we i'm not going to have you turn there but in genesis chapter 9 verse 6 long after sin has reaped its havoc on the human race god pres- prescribes the death penalty to noah for those who are guilty of murder Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood, he, by man's blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And why did God prescribe such a stiff penalty for murder? When a man murders another man, he has put to death one that bears the very image of God. James chapter 3 the New Testament now, long since the fall, when James is speaking of the deadly venom that comes from the tongue, this is what he says. James chapter 3, verse 9. With it the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the likeness of God. So it's true that sin has entered the race, that we And our children bear the image of the Most High God. So our children possess an inherent capacity of reflecting the greatness and glory of God in their lives. And I might add, we don't have time to go through this today, but if you read Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, this is greatly intensified after conversion. Our children are created with rational faculties and one day they will stand before the very bar of God and be held accountable. They have been given dominion of the earth. They are stamped with immortality, possessing both body and soul that will exist forever in eternity in either everlasting bliss or everlasting torment. Our children are the ones that we have, the children that have been granted to us, bear the image of God. Let me ask you, Dad, something. Have you thought about your children in this way recently? The fact, Dad's all by itself, ought to make us aware of how serious this responsibility is that God has given us. I remember the days of colic being up all night I remember the days of toddlers spilling stuff everywhere. Every time we turned around, they were spilling stuff. And what about young adolescents that seem as backwards as they can possibly be? Dads, they are a person of the greatest value, worth, and dignity. Our children possess the highest possible value in all the created order. So listen, dads, how we train up our children or how we discipline our children should always be determined and influenced and shaped by their dignity and their worth and their value. Your child is an image-bearer of God. Point number two. Our children are creatures possessing God-designed individuality. Let me put an emphasis on God-designed individuality. I need you to turn with me to Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, I'm going to look at verse 13 through 16. For you formed... Being unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let me ask who was there in the womb when all the mysterious selection of the genetic process was taking place? Who was there when all the anatomical and physical choices were being made? Who was there from the when the gene pool, the, all the things were being done in the gene pool, the basic mental capacities and the personality traits were being determined. Who was there? Who was there in the early moments of that child's life when it was determined that he or she would have dexterity in their fingers to be a piano player? A pianist? Who was there when it was determined that they would have the mind of an engineer who was there when it was determined that your child would have the body of an athlete i can answer this one for myself i wasn't there for those determining factors so are these all just determined by luck of the draw of course not we Believe in a sovereign God. You see, God was there and He was making all these decisions perfectly in your child. Dads, do you want to talk about establishing the biblical doctrine of self-image? This is what you do. You begin by telling your child they were created in the very image of God. Then you take them to Psalm 139 and you tell them that God has put you together exactly the way He wanted you to be. The master designer with infinite creative genius, made you. He did the entire process down to the minutest of details. The bent of your personality, your IQ, the freckles on your nose. God Almighty has determined all of it. This is true of our children, Dads. Some children will be more artistic. Some children will be more mechanical. Some will be more outgoing. Others will be introverted. If you have more than one child, you know this. Just about the time you think you have this parenting thing dialed in and that you're the expert, boom, another child comes along. And, and what do you discover? That this child doesn't fit into that neat little box you've created. And if you want to be humbled, just have another child. I've heard John MacArthur say, one time he was, time he was asked, the guy said, uh, John, with all the success that God has blessed you with, do you struggle with pride? And he looked cross-eyed at the, the guy asking and he said, Pride, I have children. Fathers, you might have a son who can't hit a baseball off a tee, but his mind absorbs the facts and figures like you've never seen before. At this point, much more can be said about how we provoke our children to anger. Seeking to live out our desires and our fantasies through our children to produce something that God never called your child to be. We need to recognize that our children are creatures possessing God designed individuality. And until that factors into our process of training them up, you will do nothing but provoke them to anger. Dads, this also answers the very difficult questions that parents often ask when they discover that their child has been born with some kind of physical limitation. Psalm 139 is as as true for a child of Down syndrome as it is one born with all his faculties operating normally. God said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Our children are creatures possessing God design individuality. Point three. Our children are sinners in general and sinners in particular. Our children have been created in the image of God to be sure. They possess God-designed individuality. Our children are sinners in general and sinners in particular. In 1690... A philosopher named John Locke wrote a famous essay that forever shaped the way the human race would think about children. In his essay concerning human understanding, he promoted the idea that at birth, every mind of every individual he referred to as tabula rasa, a blank tablet to be written on by its environment. He promoted the idea. And he advocated that every child is born neutral, without experience, without morality, without ideas, without concepts. It therefore becomes the work of society to create the kind of character that society wants to see in this innocent, neutral child. So today, when there's a gang drive by shooting, the one that shoots the gun is not responsible, it's the fault of society. The society who created him, because after all, he had a blank tablet, he was neutral. If somehow, as a society, we could f- figure out how to educate our children properly, inscribing on their mind all the right data, they were, there would emerge, by this thought process, a perfect culture, free from crime, free from violence, hostility, hatred, and bloodshed. In our day, this is the majority thought. And it's not just in the world. There's Christians that think this as well. Does this stand up, however, to the biblical record? Not by a long shot. The myth of neutrality is exactly it, a myth. When Adam sinned as a representative for the entire human race, with all of humanity in his loins all those descended through him would have pulsing through their veins the very poison of sin at this very instant of conception. I'll get there in a second. Adam reproduced after his own kind and it didn't take long for that race to deteriorate, did it? The very first child from his loins was a murderer. Not because he watched too much violence on TV, Not because he played violent video games. Not because he listened to violent music. Not because he ran around with the wrong crowd in a public school. None of those things. Hear me, though, however, running around with the wrong crowd is something the Bible does talk about and is very clear about, and watching and listening things that are not edifying, we we do hear that the Bible addresses those things, and we're not supposed to do those, and they do create problems in a very serious way. All these things can defile and influence a person. But let's be clear, they're only influences that find the landing place in the soul of a child. And we must be very careful to not fall into the trap that the seculars fall into when they say that the reason our children are bad is because of these things. No. Cain sinned, listen, Cain sinned because he had the heart of his father psalm fifty one five behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me now it 's not saying that it was a byproduct of some immoral illicit relationship here, but the moment of conception from my, sinu- my sinful disposition was in place genesis if you 're not convinced yet genesis eight twenty one noah 's offering after the flood the Lord speaks and the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground again for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So, Evil from his youth. The Bible, though, goes back even further. Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Did you hear that? Estranged from the womb? What does this mean? It means that there's a separation between God and man. And it says this estrangement is from the womb. It means it's at your beginning. The guilt, the separation, the sin is from conception. The psalmist here says, from birth they go astray, speaking lies. I bet all of you had to teach your children how to lie. If you you had to teach your children all kinds of things, but you never had to teach your children... How to lie. And as parents, we don't tell our children lies, typically. We also work really hard to make sure they're protected in an environment where there's no liars around them. I would guess nothing you do fosters or encourages lying in your child. They lie nonetheless. Why is this? Dad's because he or she is your child. Because he has your heart. Because she inherited your sin nature. Because I have passed down my sin. That sin passes down to every part of our humanness. Our minds, our hearts, our conscience, our wills, our bodies. Sin affects us in totality. Not that we're as wicked as we could be. Right? God has a common grace and God's hand of common grace restrains man from being as wicked as he could possibly be. If man was not restrained by God's hand today after this sermon, you would leave here and you wouldn't make it to your car. That's how serious sin would be in man. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, "...the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick." Who can understand it? Dads, we do need an insight into our child's hearts. Listen, right here it says, their heart is deceitful above all else. Our children's nature does not incline them to God, but drives them from God. Listen closely, however, the expression that the wicked that the wicked may not express itself as violently at this point when they're two years old as it would when they're 20 years old and remain unconverted. It'd be a whole lot worse. J.C. Ryle, he's an old dead guy pastor, wrote a bunch of essays. Um, He said this, Children are born with a decided bias towards evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. The mother cannot tell whether her tender infant will grow up tall or short, weak or strong, wise or foolish. He may or may not be any of these. It is all uncertain. But one thing a mother can say with all certainty, that he will have a corrupt and sinful heart. The Apostle Paul says it like this. We are dead in transgressions and sin. Our children do not suffer from natural inability. Our children have natural tools to become a Christian. God has given them eyes to read Scripture, ears to hear the Gospel preached. They possess a mind to analyze and make decisions but our children's wills are bound to a disposition, a heart that drives them and drives them away from God, not to God. Romans 8, 7, The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So who is this child of yours, Dad? In addition to being an image-bearer of God, in addition to being someone who possesses God-designed individuality, your child is a sinner in general and a sinner in particular. So what do I mean by a sinner in particular? That though our children have inherited this sin generally, this affects every part of our children... This is how depravity exercises itself on the life of a child. But sin will be particular with him or her. In other words, two children born out of the same womb, the offspring of the same mother and father, both inherit Adam's sin. Both are guilty. Both are spiritually dead. Both have a bad heart. Both are in need of grace. But nevertheless, that sinful heart that they have is uniquely predisposed to particular kinds of sins. Remember Jacob and Esau? They're twins. Yet, what do we know about Esau? He was rugged, a papa's boy, an outdoorsman but a man that when he expressed his sin often manifested continuously through his life as someone who is controlled by the lust of his flesh and ultimately it was his undoing. Then there was Jacob, a mama's boy, a manipulator, a deceiver, a liar. Same parents Same beginning, sinners in general, but particular sinners in distinction from one another. We may have a child like Moses who struggles with impatience and a temper, or we may have a child like Samson who is a a person whose sinful disposition inclined him towards sexual impurity. People uniquely are susceptible to certain kinds of sin. One man might struggle with one sin and another with another. Every child is a sinner in general. Depravity is no respecter of persons. But how that depravity expresses itself in the life of your particular children is something that will be unique to him or her. Every one of our children will be predisposed to particular sins. So what does this all mean? Since the holy responsibility to train up your children rests with you dads, This means that we need to be with our children all the time. With our eyes and ears open to see and hear the unique displays of sin. This means we need to be in constant discussions with our wives about the nature of the sins of our children. If you have a family like mine, my wife is around them more hours a day than I am. She's learning and looking for those particular expressions. And... Together, we need to be in prayer to God to help us with His Word to respond to these unique sins in particular in a distinct way. I don't believe you respond to all sins the same way. You don't discipline them all the same way. And this might require us dads to study on our part more, digging out the Scriptures, everything we can find on a particular sinful habit, how to avoid, how to deal, how to overcome with it, Overcome it, and I guarantee you, it will necessitate some extended prayer, maybe even fasting, so that we might discover the mind of Christ and the wisdom of the Spirit of God. If we are to our holy responsibilities, then it demands that we possess biblical understanding of who our children are. Image bearers creatures possessing God-designed individuality, sinners in general and particular, and fourth, and you're probably happy I'm finally here to the last point. point, fourth, and this point should bring you great encouragement, we need to recognize our children are individuals susceptible to the influences of saving grace. God can save children, and God does save children. Richard Baxter, he's another old dead guy. You can see from now, I, uh, from this sermon anyway. I like old dead guys, um, but he was a Puritan preacher, and he said this: "I am forced to judge most of the children of the godly that are ever renewed are renewed in their childhood." He says the children of Christian parents more often than not, if they are to be converted, will be converted while they're children. Dads, if anything is to encourage you to be a prophet and a priest in your home, it ought to be this, that your children are individuals that are susceptible to the influence of God's saving grace. Your children are not beyond saving. You cannot save them, I cannot save them, and frankly, they cannot save themselves. Only God can save them. But we know that God does not operate in a vacuum. In the midst of His sovereignty, He employs means. The preaching of the Gospel and prayer. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, I know, the sac- I know that you know the sacred Scriptures from your childhood. He says, I've seen the faith in you that I saw in your mom and your grandmother, and they made known the Scriptures to you. The scriptures, the agent of, agent of salvation. So, why should this encourage us? God did not put your children in the home of a non Christian man. He could have, by virtue of their guilt in Adam, he would have been perfectly justified in doing that. But he placed your children in the home of a Christian, someone who knows and loves Jesus. Why? So that your children would have the privilege that most other children will never have. To hear the Gospel, to learn from the Gospel, to hear the sound of the Gospel, to see the glorious beauty and the utter loveliness of the Gospel. I know we don't look at it this way, dads, but God has placed your children in a home where you as a dad can be a prophet, a priest, and a king to your little ones, to your teenagers, and to your adult children. So today, dads, let me encourage you, but remember there is work to be done. Remember that your children are image bearers of the Most High God. They are creatures possessing God's designed individuality. They are sinners in general and sinners in particular. And finally, they are individuals susceptible to the influences of saving grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, I thank you for all the dads here. I thank you for the dads watching. Lord, I ask you um, to not let your word return void. Help us as fathers to not be passive. Help us as fathers to um, lift up to you our children, to be active in their lives. And Lord, we ask You for Your sovereign grace in this effort. And I know, Lord, You'll answer that prayer. And Lord, I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity to study from Your Word today, Lord. And Lord, I pray that um, it touched someone. I know, Lord, for me, even studying this and preparing for this, I... I have a newfound respect for my duties. And Lord, I pray that that is what happens in the lives of men watching this. I thank you, Lord, for being the ultimate Father. I thank you that you died for us while we were yet sinners. I thank you for your grace.